the kind of fanaticism that came with watching Star Wars and like trying to understand this kind of mythology that really didn't exist, right? I mean, or it's a accumulated mythology that, you know, goes back to, you know, this is Jesus Christ to King Arthur to Luke Skywalker to what will become Harry Potter, you know, the way we keep kind of rehashing these kind of narratives. So once again, how they become models of a narrative that we can kind of once again bring back into our everyday life. And, you know, back to a certain point of, you know, our desire or an audience's desire to kind of want to look like these things or, you know, their lives to be like them, this kind of wish fulfillment that happens in pop culture too. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 143rd episode, Mike Ray joins us to talk about his exhibition called Ghosting. It's up now through June 6th at Demo Project in Springfield, so please check it out again. You can make a visit on Saturdays from 1 to 4, so check it out. Two Saturdays left. We're also excited to remind you, Demo is part of our collaboration on our 2015 competition. Once again, open to all BA, BFA, MA, MFA, and professional artists. Once again, we'll be selecting three artists from each of those categories to be featured on Studio Break for a total of nine. And we'll also be selecting one artist from each category for a solo exhibition. One of them will be at Demo Projects, one of them will be at the Peoria Art Guild, and the last will be at Jan Brandt Gallery. So once again, three solo exhibitions and you can be on Studio Break. Our juror this year is Julia Friedman of Exchange Works, which is a unique organization that helps bring artists to different opportunities and different resources. So check that out as well. We're very excited to have her as our juror. You can find out more information at Studio Break's website and just check under the 2015 competition information. The deadline is June 15th, so please get your applications in soon. Once again, if you're new to Studio Break, we are just a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists. They share their work and insight into it, so check out all the great interviews on Studio Break. You can find the podcast on iTunes. We have a Facebook page, so if you like following social media, check us out there. We've also got a Tumblr account, that's studio-break.tumblr. And lastly, please send all your tweets to at Studio Break. And with that out of the way, here is our interview with Mike Ray. Stay tuned. I remember when I was in kindergarten, uh, uh, they did the uh, did a little graduation or whatever, and they uh, announced, you know, when it was my turn, they called this guy Mike uh, Mike Ria up, and I'm like, who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like frantic parents from the audience, kind of waving, going, "That's you, that's you, go, go, go." <laughs> so, and again, that serves as like the perfect introduction. So, welcome, Mike Ray, to Studio Break. <laughs> Thanks for joining me this morning. So it'll be, it'll be cool to really talk about your work. Again, um, you've got so much stuff on your website, so I encourage people especially to check that out. There's a show at Demo, and is there also one at the, uh, the University Galleries there at, in Springfield as well? There's not. We just did uh, talks and critiques in conjunction with the university. The problem with sculpture is, you know, it's always the, the truck rental and getting this stuff places and uh, – the amount of money it kind of costs to put on a show as opposed to maybe like a, a painting show or, you know, drawings or something that can kind of fit in that Honda fit nice and easy. This is usually, you know, a U-Haul experience. Yeah. I would imagine that's also very logistically like difficult just because uh, some of the stuff is so, you know, gosh, like the scale of it's just huge. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten better at it over the years of kind of making things modular, which, um, it, it, it kind of disrupts the flow of kind of making things a little bit because, you know, you're as opposed to just kind of making this one thing in a linear fashion, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of building this part of something and you don't really get to, you don't get that reward of seeing it come together until maybe the end. But, you know, it's kind of, you have to avoid the, the ship in a bottle, you know, as far as, you know, with larger scale sculptures and having this thing that's just stuck in your studio or that, you know, even as I get older, just, um, I'm not physically able to move around in the studio by myself. So even just to kind of be able to work with it, it has to be in small stuff, but yeah, flat pieces that can be like strapped to the side of the truck. It's uh, 
it's getting a little bit more streamlined at this point, but it only took like 10 years to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the case, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You're right. You know, it's like hindsight. And so are you, you're an Illinois native then? You grew up in, in and around Chicago, is that right? Or? Yeah, I'm from the south suburbs of Chicago. My parents are both south, are south siders proper, um, but I grew up in like Burbank and then Tinley Park for like, you know, my middle to high school years and then out to NIU originally for undergrad and then University of Wisconsin-Madison. So kind of Midwestern raised and educated. I don't know why. I just imagine you're just like just into everything in the garage or something. Did you build a lot of stuff when you were growing up and was art kind of important to you or in junior high, I was, uh, the guy who taught a uh, wood shop was kind of this burly kind of lumberjack dude. And I found him kind of intimidating. Uh, um, there was rumors that he had pushed a kid into a locker or something like that, which I probably shouldn't <laughs> say, on but I mean, these are just, I, I'm pretty sure he was still teaching there. That never happened. But, mm-hmm. um, this was the banter that went around with the students. And I, I took like, I opted out and took like advanced home ec and uh, <laughs> responsibility education actually won the home ec award that year. Um, <laughs> great omelets. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I didn't really take um, the wood stuff. I didn't really start working with until like my, um, until towards the end of my undergrad, basically um, I was an art education major so we took a well-rounded kind of curriculum. We took one of each course and uh, kind of focused in painting and took extra classes there at the time. And it wasn't until after undergrad that I really started kind of pursuing three-dimensional objects as you know a way to make. I mean, as a kid, though, I mean to go back. I mean, I, I you know I made like a lot of skateboard ramps and things like that. So kind of, you know, really shoving stuff together, a lot of like, you know, dumpster dove, um, grew up in an area that was like developing. So, and I mean, I think might even relate to the raw wood or, um, into kind of my initial interest in that aesthetic of, you know, kind of grew up inside like my entire, you know, later neighborhoods, like was inside everybody else's houses before they were built. You know, these were kind of the playground of these construction sites. Um, and then, like I said, kind of scavenging as much of that material just to make like skateboard ramps and things like that. At least from my perspective, just such like a technical, like slickness to the work, but there's also like this level of just that kind of like just getting it done, I guess. I don't know. Like if that makes sense, like it, it, it makes yeah. sense to me to think you like kind of like going through like houses and just kind of grab and just throw this together and do something with it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's a, when I went to Madison, I mean, I worked, you know, they have a furniture department, and I worked alongside and I had, you know, my classmates or colleagues um, at that level, I guess, you know, worked with woodworkers, you know, coming out of like East Coast schools, like RISD, you know, had like really, you know, people that were, you know, really knew and understood how to like stick stuff together the right way. Mm-hmm. A lot of mine was yeah, intuitive, I suppose. And then I, you know, start to kind of mix looking at some of that and kind of going, oh, but at the same time, realizing and enjoying that, you know, there's something nice about, like, I remember a woodworker pointing out, I had shown a piece at a, you know, like a first year graduate student group show. And one of the furniture makers, uh, this woman, uh, B.A. Harrington, and she's just like, oh, I love the way you left the blade burn on there. And I'm just like, blade burn? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you could not get, you know, it's just like, uh, I didn't really consider it to some extent or, you know, enjoyed the darkening that it, you know, created on the cross grain. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time in the, the lexicon of like woodworkers or whatnot, you know, it's such a no-no to, you know, have that, you know, that mark um, kind of persist into the finished product. So letting some of those like unfinished hallmarks present themselves, I think is kind of nice. I mean, especially with regards to sculpture. Well, and I think obviously just because you're mixing so many different kind of materials too, I mean, so, well, not all the time, but like, you know, different woods look different ways. Uh, maybe the different grains, kind of the way you put them together. Yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, it's like whether you show like plywood, I guess that would, you know, once again, normally be covered up, you know, or veneered um, and letting that persist. I mean, I, but I think we've gotten used to that at this point a little bit too, um, as far as design has kind of incorporated some of that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's like kind of how we view furniture and objects, you know, usable functional objects. But, um, yeah, I mean, I also use poplar. I like it. I mean, it, it creates a diversity or it looks like there's, um, you know, two different uh, bodies of wood coming together a lot of times. But it's, once again, just the variety of the grain with that material, which, mm-hmm. once again, is kind of a castaway material. It's too soft for furniture. Um, it won't hold up to any of the, the banging and pushing. 
Oh, excuse me. Definitely not a hardwood, but I mean, not the softest wood either. So it's been nice for me to use for sculpture. And I like, once again, that diversity of, you know, the same piece of wood can go from blonde to purple. And then the synchronicity of how that starts to present itself as far as the design or, you know, whether you're tiling something or making stripes, the way that rhythm comes back into the finished product. So you're kind of both ends, you know, from the start to finish, the you know, the tree to what it once again becomes. But I guess it's... um its character, um, its history kind of once again will kind of prevail or once again interject itself into the finished product. What was that transition then from like a kind of maybe starting out more towards like a, I guess like a 2D gear, the way that you kind of briefly described and then kind of kind of going off towards like a sculptural direction? Was there any like specific, uh, I don't know, instance or occurrence that kind of did that for you? I mean, I think the big part of it was just, like, shows I was starting to see, too. Um, there was the Charles Ray retrospective at the MCA, and I recently just got to go see his uh, latest retrospective at the Art Institute and his talk as well. You know, seeing that show um, and also seeing maybe the H.C. Westerman show. H.C. Um, Westerman, obviously, for, you know, how he's, you know, working with wood, um, also kind of as an outsider craftsman. But at the same time, I loved how his um, personal narrative or just how that started to translate into a general narrative and how that started to interact with an audience as well. Um, his fixation with sharks, um, kamikazes, and you know this kind of uh, almost what uh, Jaws capitalizes on, the uh, Steven Spielberg, and then I can't remember the writer, the author of the book. But yeah, just seeing those two artists, I think, and also I think getting to a point with painting where I was running, you know, as building stretchers and i mean that was they kind of kind of partnered off each other for a bit there because it was i ran into the dilemma of trying to make a stretcher that was straight that didn't like come off the wall like some kind of half pipe and acquiring enough of a skill set with regards to like a table saw or basic woodworking to kind of accomplish that and then seeing those shows and just kind of going like you know, what's happening behind this painting might be more interesting than what I'm putting on the surface of it at the time. And I'm not, I'm not talking about painting in general, that painting can't be interesting more, that I wasn't able to maybe make something interesting for myself or for anyone else at that point. And my interest kind of shifted at that point to uh, trying to kind of manipulate something in the back, you know, working with the three-dimensional stuff. And, and then originally, yeah, that kind of flips into a performance piece, which is like the earliest wood pieces or wood sculptures of making a wooden band, basically. It just seems like everything that you make is so playful and, and interactive in a way that painting is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think painting can be, um, you know, fun and, you know, interactive as well. I mean, or flippant at times, it doesn't necessarily have to, to be austere or, you know, I mean, I collect a lot of work. I mean, I think like Ethan Gill's paintings that just showed at, um, I'm sorry, uh, Julius Caesar in Chicago were really just, you know, outrageous um, personal narrative again, mixed with, you know, they're like football and um, just, but they're still at the same time at their heart, like just beautiful paintings, like just, you know, really uh, gestural and physical. Um, But like I said, yeah, I mean, maybe it's, and I think that just goes, you know, that's, different artists. And I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with something that is austere as well. And maybe a little bit colder. Um, but at the end, um, I'm kind of, you know, that's kind of me. And I think that's also kind of, um, you know, getting to a place where you can kind of shoot from the hip a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but uh, you know, it's the, uh, right. What, you know, and you know, I'm not, you know, this kind of, uh, heady guy. I mean, I'm interested in things of that nature, but at the same time, I'm, I think, more concerned with a, a good joke um, or something that just relates kind of, you know, once again, reflecting my own experiences, which I think maybe are a little bit more lighthearted. There's some sinisterness in these. I mean, they're also salacious, but once again, I think that just reflects myself and having a confidence to kind of project some of that, I guess, or sharing something like that with an audience, which, you know, that's the difference between a, you know, a 25-year-old me and a you know, a 39 year old me now. Yeah. I'm kind of, you know, like that's, you know, you know, like Robert Crumb, I think seeing that documentary, I was like, Oh shit, I'm not fucked up. These guys are, real this is fine. <laughs> Were you like a, a musician as well? Or is that something that I'm just kind of, you know, making up? I played saxophone from probably sixth grade to early high school. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was, you know, I think I was, I was talking to somebody about the other day. I mean, it's one of those like, 
you know, I keep saying that I'll pick it up and keep kind of, you know, playing it. But I, it just seems like I live in an apartment in Chicago. I'd be, you know, incredibly annoying to, ever, to anyone else who has to live by me. And I'm probably a little rowdier than I should be anyway. So I really don't need to play like, you know, getting back, getting my uh, amateur back in shape is probably uh, nobody's business. But, uh, yeah, I played sax, um, and I played in, like, a ska band for a little while, like, towards the end of high school. You know, not a great one by any means, but a fun one. And I think that was also helpful for the performative side of, you know, the earlier work was, like, and I think I was always more interested in that. I mean, you know, saxophone kind of died during my, you know, I'm a 1975 uh, baby. So, yeah, at one point, sax was extremely cool, but then I also saw saxophone, like, completely deflate <laughs> i mean i guess we can blame kenny g for that but <laughs> one man destroy one instrument <laughs> i was gonna say it seems like there are so many 1980s songs that like use the the saxophone to such an artistic level i'm thinking of like billy ocean songs and i don't know Love just... billy ocean yeah my dreams get in my car well when the going gets tough the tough thing <laughs> i think is my favorite which does play in the studio quite often <laughs> Well, that kind of brings up something else that's maybe kind of interesting to kind of talk about is just that that level of like a, a pop culture kind of reference. Um, it seems like so many of the things that, you know, I look at in your work, you know, like like at first you're kind of like re- it's kind of removed from context. And then you start thinking about this and going, OK, I think I know this is from is this from, you know, like The Exorcist or is that something that's that's, I guess, exploring those kind of things? I mean, what's that about? Is that something that? Is just nostalgic. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a you know a pretty big fan of like Quentin Tarantino. I think does it pretty much better than anyone else out there. But um, the accumulation, um, you know, whether it's the residue of an actor, you know, like how John Travolta basically from Saturday Night Fever, the residue from making that film comes into the character of Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. The concept of suspension of disbelief has really been amplified, like, you know, through postmodernism and maybe even metamodernism at this point of like the way we can kind of cite these things. I had an art history professor who was just amazed and always talked about a pop-up video and how, you know, within this three minute, you know, which was an MTV um, TV show early on back when, you know, it's going to cliche when they showed videos <laughs> um, <laughs> early in their evolution, um, you know, where they start kind of referencing themselves and like you're watching, you know, Madonna is like a virgin and then all these little facts are popping up and like just the amount of information we can kind of take in. Like we're watching the video, we're enjoying the video, but we're also kind of relating all these kind of side topics. And within three minutes, you're probably taking in like 300 facts and really kind of understanding them too, for the most part, if you're kind of tuned in uh, to popular culture. I mean, I think pop culture is also a good thermometer in ways, too, I guess, back to kind of why I use it so heavily. But and I think, you know, even back to, you know, myself and my own subjective with it is, you know, that's kind of you know something we did as kids. Like my family is like, you know, we'd sit around the dinner table and kind of, you know, movie quotes or talk about, you know, film. That was kind of something we would go do on weekends was go see a movie and then, you know, and how that would chat. And I mean, that just, you know, just the kind of fanaticism that came with watching Star Wars and like trying to understand this kind of mythology that really didn't exist right i mean or it's a accumulated mythology that you know goes back to you know this is jesus christ to king arthur to luke skywalker to what will become harry potter you know the way we keep kind of rehashing these kind of narratives so once again how they become models of a narrative that we can kind of once again bring back into our everyday life and you know back to a certain point of you know our desire or an audience's desire to kind of want to look like these things or, you know, their lives to be like them, this kind of wish fulfillment that happens in pop culture too. And so is that something that you think kind of really resonates then with people that wind up seeing your work is just kind of making those kind of connections for themselves and, I mean, I think it's an entrance point, um, definitely. Um, they've become, you know, steadily more cryptic as time has gone on, which I think has just been a way for me to kind of abstract um, those kinds of the narratives that kind of run through things or even kind of dismantle the narrative at the end. Yeah, you might be able to pick up this entry point or that entry point if they can kind of get the complete logic that I was working with. And I'm using the term logic loosely. Uh, <laughs> 
But there's, once again, there's these breadcrumbs and they can kind of, you know, at the same time, have their own experience with it. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be mine, you know, word for word. Um, but, I, you know, that gives the audience some agency with the work and how they can kind of address it and move through it. And there's a physical ergonomic to most of the work that it is life-size or two-scale. And you're leaving basically that kind of open spot in the composition, you know, especially in a sculpture in a space of, you know, where do we kind of blend into these things, um, especially with kind of the rise of the selfie and work and like, you know, maybe it's, you know, and even just thinking about a prop as well as a, as a sculptural structure or uh, object in space that we have to kind of interact with or view. And I, mean, I guess, you know, it becomes kind of a slippery slope of, how the gaze operates with sculpture um, at this point, especially when we start to really insert ourselves into these things. I mean, back to selfie culture. From a, a perspective of just kind of like putting one of these together, could you kind of maybe just break down like how that process works a little bit? I mean, do you kind of work out ideas in a sketchbook? Do you um, just see something through to completion? Are there various stages of this? How does it work? Um, usually I just kind of get to work on the wood stuff and start kind of just building it in space. You know, like a piano key starts with a, you know, a block of wood and you kind of cut it out a few times on the table saw until it starts to look about the right size or feel the right size. And at this point, there's occasionally like a few Google references where I'll kind of look it up, you know, do a quick image search and go piano. You know, okay, well, they kind of look like this and then set the phone aside and basically start kind of building the thing. If they're more complex, like the chain link fences, um, that was a little bit of sketching, you know, it's like one or two drawings basically to see how this kind of like radial rotating lap joint would work and then, you know, go through these. I mean, there are a couple little like small like practice maquettes, but for the most part, I really like to just start the object. I've never been interested in the idea of fabrication per se. And maybe that goes back to starting with painting um, as a way of making. Um, basically, yeah, I wanted to kind of be this this object that has a history, um, you know, just the way like a, a raw canvas will occasionally show through on a finished painting that this is kind of it. You're looking at the history of this or the evolution of this object. Um, and maybe the honesty that that kind of presents for somebody as well, which, you know, there's also frailty um, and there's a lot of failure involved in that. And like, will, are you willing to kind of show that wonkiness uh, to somebody? But I think that's kind of a strength of the work where they kind of get off the tracks a little bit. Or initially, I just kind of had a bad foundation, but you just kind of keep working with it. Well, I think that's just a very interesting thing, because when I, I look at some of them, you know, like there's things that just kind of being more, again, like like responsive or at least kind of like building off of what you're building. So in that sense where you're talking about, you know, starting something and adding to it and adding to it. I don't know. That seems to really make sense to me. Yeah, that's kind of, I mean, it's, you know, it's like what's good for the sculpture that day. Um, and it's just, I, you know, it's whether I don't have, you know, a vast enough imagination or um, uh, the complexity to kind of basically build the whole thing in my head beforehand. But I really have to kind of build it and kind of see how it starts to operate. And then, you know, you know, once again, on a day-to-day basis, I think that also goes for me, too, because, I mean, you know, this, whether it's something that you're working on a week or maybe three to six months, you know, you're changing and, you know, my mood becomes fickle as well. And, you know, I don't want to just be like, well, I said I was going to do it this way three months ago. So I have to, you know, I don't really contain myself that way. And it's, I don't know, it's like, I think it's more, it's like, well, this has changed. Um, we're going to, you know, make a shift here. This I, I didn't expect this to need something more, but it really does if it's going to, you know, make it, you know, be able to stand on its own in space. It looks like you're you're making at least somewhat like pieces very specifically for like specific shows. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I, I guess I'm just trying to get an idea of like like a timeline, like how long it takes you to kind of go like, OK, I want to make, you know, X amount of, you know, sculptures or, or pieces for this show. Or is it somewhat based off of the lo- location or venue? I mean, like, I mean, I had a show at the Union League in Chicago, and I kind of wanted to up the ante with, like, some of the S&M imagery that I've been fooling around with a little bit lately. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would be, I'm like, oh, let's, you know, th- that's funny, right? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of this, you know, it's a it's a really lovely institution that's been really great to artists. Um, I mean, I think a friend of mine had trouble there with his titles, you know, that his titles were just a little too vulgar I, they would say but I, I would just say salacious or rambunctious so I was like well 
kind of saw that as the bar and I'm like, well, what can, you know, it's, and I think it's always kind of like, well, what can I get away with, with it too? Mm-hmm. In a way, I mean, you know, but at the same time the, the space was, uh, physically demanding that it, it needed to be like kind of against the wall. And it's like these heavily, like, you know, chair railing and like old molding, you know, carpet on the walls, all beige. But, um, I really liked the way the show turned out, but had to make more two-dimensional works. And then as far as a freestanding sculpture, really needed something, you know, that would kind of flatten out. But in the end, then I take that piece somewhere else and, you know, the work goes together in a sense, you know, you know, it's basically work that's been built over the last two years has been kind of getting shifted and um, how those modules go together. And, you know, once again, there's, if there's a vagueness between the audience and one piece, like kind of where they stand or, you know, once again, what am I in it? What's the, what's the object and what's my space and what's the viewer's space. If I can even cloud that up even more and further engulf the audience into the pieces by how they start to accumulate together, which is like a lot of these uh, chain link fence pieces and uh, bathroom stalls, a lot of two dimensional things that are actually three dimensional objects. I think that makes sense, um, especially just because some of them just become like, you know, environments almost in, in terms mm-hmm. of all the different works. Um, and I guess, I, I don't know, like, like it's just so fascinating to me because I look at it and I just go like, good gosh, this is like this. I, I have no idea how much work goes into this, you know. And so I think that's one of the things that becomes so, I don't know, interesting and in just in terms of just, a, you know, somebody that makes stuff. Just because it, it just seems like something that, I don't know, requires so much more planning than I could come up with. Yeah, I mean, I think I like the, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I always think the, the you know, the, the hand of the artist is nice or the accumulation of time, if anything, kind of, you know, creates a sense of trust, at least, you know, with the audience. You're like, well, at least he seems to really mean this, <laughs> you know, like whether it's like, I don't agree with his work or, you know, you know, this is, you know, maybe you know, maybe fall or maybe this one's like, Oh, I, you know, I don't agree with the narrative or I find this boring or what, but you know, at least I can be like, well, he really means it, you know, which is, you know, I've always kind of got that out of like uh, Robert Crumb's like drawings, you know, it's like, say what you will and go like, Oh, that's, I can't believe he's into that. Or, you know, back to Tarantino and, you know, which I wonder if it's even like a fake foot fetish that he was presenting in his films or if he really is into feet. <laughs> but like that kind of, I mean, it's, it's self-deprecating. Um, And I think there's a certain self-deprecation that comes through the accumulation of the craft um, that, you know, breeds trust, hopefully, with your audience or the viewer. Does that make sense? No, I I think it does. And I I guess just to follow that up, I noticed, too, like a lot of your materials are always kind of like listed as just very, very basic, you know, like a handful of things, um, usually in terms of like how how it's, um, you know, labeled. Is that something that is how, how do you put these together? Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, yeah, like poplar and like, like all wood is just mistreated as far as the labeling is concerned. It's just wood. It's just generic. Um, (laughs) um, At least that's the way I've treated it language wise. And the same thing, like burlap is burlap, rope is rope. And, you know, polystyrene is usually just referred to as pink foam. Mm -hmm. I think that's about, you know, occasionally there's some paint or something like that. Um, You know, I don't get into like, you know, it's like the list could go, you know, it's like pin nails, wood glue, you know, and it's like a type on two from 2012 because it's a different formula. Um, no, it's kind of you see, what you see is what you get. I mean, most things are it's pretty physical in the sense that you can kind of decode how they go together or those steps are kind of built into it. Um, but, yeah, it's once again, I think part of that is like just pushing on often, you know, once again, these are not fine furniture or things of that nature. Um um, and like I said, it's a back to the self-deprecating kind of craft um, or using craft to kind of have a little bit of self-deprecation. I mean, the idea of like, you know, making a dirty joke that takes six months to make, you know, like what that, you know, it's like, you know, it's supposed to be flippant. Um, but what happens when you elongate that experience and drag it out? And there's a certain, it's kind of pathetic in a way. Um, they're kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of the, the, the tears of a clown kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm curious too, just like in in terms of like how you've managed to like innovate in terms of just how comfortable you are with the material. Is that something that kind of really develops too? Is in terms of like how complex you can make something? Or 
Yeah, I mean, I think at the start, too, there was always an issue of, like, people, you know, especially, I think, when I was in grad school, you know, which we're talking, like, 12 years ago or something now or 10 years ago at this point, um, of just, like, you know, what happens, like, when you, you know, because you've got to learn how to do something better. You know, you can't, like, right. <laughs> you've got a problem if you just can't. I still can't figure out this table saw. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> how to, um, I think I have different outlets for it at this point. Like, I mean, I'm still, you know, not, you know, I can fabricate pretty well at this point. Like if I want to make a piece of Ikea furniture, you know, not a piece of Ikea furniture, like a real piece of furniture, I know how to do it at this point. And I occasionally do make things like that for myself, like a table or a desk. Um, and I, I, I teach now as well. So you just get good at um, sticking things together and just it's process, you know, an experience. But also kind of how do you maintain a certain freshness or a um, – kind of disrespect for your materials. But, I mean, I think that's always um, the nice thing about sculpture versus, you know, fabrication or, um, you know, just that that's it's the, there's a different goal or end game involved, and I'm not looking for precision. So that'll kind of disrupt the process all along the way. Uh, you know, it's just it's a lot slower and it's a lot more methodical if you, you know, if you're trying to make a thing that is, you know, perfectly square and completely level. That doesn't usually – I don't need – I need something to look level, but I don't really need it to be level. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. So that kind of changes how you stick stuff together. So it becomes different. You know, it's just different, you know, like the way I hit – you know, which is kind of odd, but it's like when I'm, you know, when I'm basically drawing with a table saw as opposed to, you know, uh, carpentry with a table saw. And so I'm curious, what you, what does the space look like that you're working in then? I mean, are you kind of working on a bunch of these – at the same time, so you can kind of jump back and forth, or yeah, there's usually a few things going on, and it's like I mean, I've got some stuff like right now that like just you know about a year and a half ago just got put on hold. It was one of those where a show wanted to show you know I made a piece, I'd started some newer stuff, and they wanted more stuff like the piece from before. So long story short, a year and a half later, you're just getting back to this other piece <laughs> because you know you get momentum one way or another, and somebody wants to show something of that vein or yoke, you know, and it's like, well, okay. You know, you got to kind of go where the shows go and, you know, you're trying to work, you know, you're trying to cooperate with, you know, curators and things of that nature. So you kind of give up a little bit of this or that. And, you know, there's just only so much time in a day or a year. Sure. So you have to manage it that way. But yeah, so there's like right now there's, you know, I've been doing some more drawing, like in the winter I did a bunch of drawings in between and then we got like some larger new sculptures I'm working on now, but there's probably like three or four kind of going at a time. And I think some of that comes out of like the larger scale ones. Um, it's just the, the capacity to kind of like, they kind of burn you out a little bit. So you have to have some smaller, more, you know, just like the quick fix as far as like artist reward, um, to kind of keep you going just to kind of keep a morale <laughs> where it should be in the studio. And, and how long is a short piece then? I mean, a short piece is like could be anywhere from like you know a day to like three days. Okay, you know, like a small, like a small weird knife or like a bong, or <laughs> you know, it's like can you make a you know a bong sculpture? Um, but sometimes, like even a short piece, I mean, like a two weeker is kind of nice too, where you know maybe it's or like you know you know a fifty hour kind of thing is. I mean, that's relatively short. You know, you know that that's kind of you know you're moving pretty fast, like you're. You know, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're getting rewards at the end of each day, or it's starting to look like something. I mean, there's always kind of momentum in the pieces, so it's just like, as long as you can kind of get see that halfway point, it kind of, you know, it's all downhill from there. But it's like the starting phase, and you know, if you're looking at something that's going to take six months to make, like, you don't really see a lot at the start, and it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a drag, you know, for the, you know, first month or two, you're just like, oh, I'm just building and not getting anything done. You're just, you know, parts and piles. And that's, you know, not really, it's not exciting for anybody to look at, you know, more or less myself. Are there a lot of like things that just not, not work out and just kind of sit there for a while and work themselves back in or? <laughs> yeah, there's a few of those. Yeah. It's like, like tier three, like that are just like, they don't get thrown out, but <laughs> they're just like, what are you doing here? And like, you know, people come for the visits and you're like, yeah, I tried to make like a, I was, I worked at a, uh, a porn store when I was in undergrad, basically for, you know, a job 
Mm-hmm. She was pretty – like, got paid really well, but it was like a clerk, you know. You just kind of like, you know, people had to pay a browsing fee and, you know, you put batteries in people's vibrators basically before they bought them because, you know, you really don't want returns on that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, um, oh, God, where was I even going with that? <laughs> like – Gosh, probably the most probably the most comfortable job ever too. I, I'm sure you meet a lot of uh, interesting folks. It's a weird confessional. You're a priest with no vows. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're perfectly well. I mean, I think I was you know trying to be pretty respectful about that. But uh, well, we were talking about failure. And- oh yeah, but no, I was saying about failed pieces. But they they had these. The thing that always struck me the weirdest were like these castings of like people's like lower like you know it's what's called like a pocket pussy you know so it's a it's a model of like someone's vagina basically i mean some were just simulated but they got more complex where they'd actually kind of cast the outside of like jenna jameson or you know (laughs) um you know these famous actress actresses and they had some that were like where it was like cut off like right at like where your your artery is almost so you had like this weird chunk of thigh and a little bit of like you know, torso, like, you know, if you kind of just cut a mannequin basically like at the high thigh and at the waist. And then of course, you know, it was anatomically correct. And then had like, it was just this big chunk of latex, you know, and it was just like, I mean, I think you sit on a counter and have at it. Uh, I've always thought that was such a weird object. Um, so I, I started and tried to make one, but like forever that thing just sits in the studio, this weird, like overgrown pocket pussy thing. That's just like, <laughs> What the? What is this going to be? But at the same time, it hasn't been thrown out yet. I keep sometimes artists want to collaborate, and like I'm always kind of like always want to kind of off like, hey, could you fix this? <laughs> but like nobody's taken me up on it yet, so it's like I'm, it's my burden to you know to carry. So we'll figure well, one day, or maybe it'll find its way to the dumpster. But yeah, there's a, there's a few of these kind of projects like that where you're just like. Ah. I don't, I don't know how to resolve you, so you're going to just have to sit on the bench for a while, and we're going to move on to somebody a little bit more convenient <laughs> for today kind of thing. The idea of failure is just interesting in that regards because I, I just – I don't know. They look so planned. I, I would imagine then there's so many, I don't know, things that you wind up learning how to figure out from other pieces that wind up going into other pieces. So just – I don't know. Like I'm, I'm trying to think about it in the way that somebody else might – kind of like work failure into their other works, you know what I mean? Or like kind of like take something and then learn from it so that, you know, something else kind of gets expanded. I don't know. Are are there any, uh, I guess, particular pieces that you kind of think of uh, looking back on that were, you know, really significant ones that you're really happy with or, or that kind of seem to transcend something that was, I don't know, different than the others? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of it's. I think it's more of a love the one you're with kind of thing. Mm-hmm. No, I think that <laughs> I think that makes very much sense for most artists. I yeah, guess. For, for every artist who's in love with his piece, there's another artist who's dying to break up with his piece or something. <laughs> that I'm, I'm screwing that one up, but uh, back to that. Yeah, for for every beautiful piece of art, there's a artist who's dying to break up with it. But I guess I don't know to kind of bring it back to like the way that people interact and and. Um, get something out of these pieces. I mean, what is that kind of like that interaction with people that are going to be taken in the work? I mean, I've never had like, I mean, are you saying there's, I mean, if somebody doesn't interact with the piece or if they're just, I don't know, like, is it, like, well, cause you, you talked before just about how like we're borrow, you know, we're able to kind of like borrow and, and reference from so many different sources, you know? So mm-hmm. for example, like you have a, a piece, uh, a text piece, uh, it's a wonderful life. And for some reason, just in the context of their other work, I want to relate it to the spray paint in the movie um, Red Dawn, mm-hmm. Wolverines. Yeah. I don't know. Again, I don't know if that has any kind of relationship, but I start kind of making these kind of like weird connections, and I just don't know if that, if that's something that's that's right, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's a good example. And I mean, like, that's, I, I you know, I think that's a good way of reading the work. I mean... Like I said, you're never going to be able to control, like, let's say, the critic. And, I mean, everybody's a critic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they want to talk about it. And sometimes that's a much more interesting way to talk about it than how I was <laughs> thinking about talking about mm-hmm. it, I guess. Um, but, no, no, it is – I mean, it, it's it's a cinematic, like, you know, this – I mean, it's the spray paint, you know, which is always kind of the most, like – there's a certain amount of disrespect in it. I mean, even in its highest forms of graffiti, it's, there's about, it's about trespassing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the piece that I, you know, it's a wonderful life misspelled, which is a, it's a direct appropriation from the movie, the exorcist three. 
mm-hmm. which is always these messages. It's these cryptic, you know, it's, it's the, um, Andrew Falkowski does it really well where he does the, um, he's a painter in Chicago, but he does these, um, ransom notes mm-hmm. and it becomes the kind of like, and it's, it's a, it's a perfect example of it's, you're trying to, you know, it's basically the, the ransom where you're sending it to the audience, right? Whoever, you know, you've kidnapped their child or whatever or whatnot. And you want, they need to know who you are enough because you're trying to communicate with them. But at the same time, you're preserving like your identity or things of this nature. And so it's what you tell them and it's what you don't tell them, right? But it's as clear as it needs to be. And the spray paint is kind of that again, like it's the serial, you know, it's the message that the serial killer leaves behind, or in your case, it's the Wolverines, this, this hallmark that they were here, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's the ISIS flag, right? I mean, it's these, you know, these things, these, uh, you know, once again, where it starts, it's a, it's a weird boogeyman, right? That wants to, uh, there's a mystery there, but at the same time, you're trying to communicate with somebody. Um, and, and this is a parenthetical version of it, right? It's in quotes. Um, it's been, you know, it's been strained through, you know, with, in my case, you know, it's gone through a computer. It's been printed to size. A template was made. It was traced onto plywood. And then it was, it was made, it's made thick, right? And, and then it hangs on the wall. It's very, there's nothing, um, it's supposed to look, you know, this way. There's a contradiction in it that, you know, once again, you're, you're writing this kind of flippant comment, but it's very well considered, right? It has to be. Um, you only have one shot at it because it's kind of marked in stone, right? It's spray paint on a brick. It doesn't come off. It's on, you know, it's the blood of the, you know, it's it's Helter Skelter, you know, Charles uh, Manson as well, right? With the, the pigs and whatnot written on the wall, um, which shall take. And, but then it's, yeah, this quotation of it, this kind of vileness, but then what happens when it is completely deflated and you kind of show it. So, you know, I built this kind of wood template and then went and basically spray painted over it and then how that, you know, those two things interacted and how the overspray went onto the wall at Ebers Moore Gallery and kind of that kind of, and there's a little bit of pissing on the wall, right? You know, the same way that you were talking about how you like the idea of people um, kind of giving you their take, I, I just wanted to listen to yours. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I mean, if you do it right, it's viral, you know, so it's like, you say Wolverines, and then this concept will kind of eat that too. Mm-hmm. No, that's it's kind I mean, of the Andromeda strand of sorts, right? It just keeps creeping out there, and more and more and more. You've got this show up at demo um, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, again, kind of a collection of pieces. Could you kind of maybe just break down some of the the work that's in there? Are they specific uh, in terms of like what what's being shown? And yeah, I mean, the show's titled Ghosting. Um, which is kind of a, a verbing of a noun. I mean, if you want to call a ghost a noun, it's kind of a weird noun because it's really not a person, place, or a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happens when we verb it? But, you know, it's kind of about being there and not being there or an inability to stabilize oneself in an environment. It's a really nice space. I mean, it's kind of this, um, they've kind of, it's a reclaimed dining room, front room kind of thing of a space that will eventually be demolished, thus the name Demo Project. What there, there's a basic collection. I think it's about 25 works of art, um, small and very large. Um, and at most times you'll kind of, you know, whether you're completely immersed in the piece of work or if you can kind of get a little bit of away from it. But um, it's, you know, it's pretty expansive. Um, there's two of the large pieces. Let's see. There's um, the Story of X, which is a large um, St. Andrew's cross that we kind of see in uh, BDSM culture. That's been kind of surrounded by two other pieces, Moby Dick, which is kind of a configuration of a chain link fence, a prison wall, and then a little in a bathroom stall that has kind of got patched glory holes. Um, And then the actual wall is buckling from the kind of, I guess, immense loving that it's received over the years. (laughs) It's then there's another bathroom stall, prison cell called the quid pro quo waiting for my man. Um, lots of boom microphones in the show that once again appear to kind of be recording you Mm -hmm. and the sounds that you're making or not making, I guess. Um, some wall pieces, a a series of masks that I made last year, which there's a mask from the movie mask in the show. (laughs) And that's, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I'll kind of give you a little bit of a a nutshell, the show there, I guess. Well, there's something interesting about that. Just being able to, I mean, I would imagine just being able to take then 
like what you have, you know, like available, what the space is, and then just kind of go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to fill this out and see like, I don't know the way that I can like lay this out or kind of set something up. Is that something that like will change then very specifically for, for like a space like that? You know, I've shown this work in a couple different configurations, um, not this lineup per se. Um, it's really nice because this piece, one of the pieces, you know, a lot of these pieces are shown separately or almost together. Um, and it was really nice with demo. Once again, the architecture is kind of extreme in the space, but it really uh, made a perfect little um, pedestal for everything to kind of show. Um, just even how the beans work and kind of break up, you know, how the pieces kind of get broke up or how they basically mingle with the architecture and the space. And once again, how they mingle with one another. Like I said, it's really, it's kind of, it's, it's probably my favorite uh, layout of shows in a while. Um, it was just really, uh, it really turned out nice in my own opinion. I kind of was really happy with it. So um, hoping people will get a chance to go out and see it. Are people allowed to kind of like put this stuff on and kind of like perform with it? Or is that something where these are kind of like static objects in the show? It really varies. I mean, the pieces do get touched. I usually don't open the... Um, you know, a lot of times, like, some places don't want to deal with that, you know, and for insurance uh, reasons. Sure. Um, so it really kind of varies with, with, you know, the place. But, I mean, there's usually kind of a an unspoken, you know, kind of violation or trespassing that occurs that, you know, I'm not, you know, usually opposed to. <laughs> um, you know, and people ask me occasionally at shows, and I'm like, oh, yeah, go right ahead. You know, it's like the cross, like a woman's like, oh, can I get in that? I'm like, go right ahead. <laughs> I love that. I take shoes off, but uh, <laughs> for two reasons. But um, that just begs like a, a medieval torture show or something like that. Can I get yeah, in that? That's I mean, not like going to medieval times, I suppose. <laughs> but I mean, I think it would be you know like a Ren fair if you've ever been to that kind of shit show. I mean, there's something kind of really charming about it. Could you kind of talk a little bit about maybe something that's coming up that you're you're excited about, like a, a new show or a, something to look forward to in the future? Oh, God, I don't know if there's anything to look forward to in the future. <laughs> um, not right for a bit. I mean, the biggest thing I've got, I mean, this is like way in the future, but I'm kind of excited about it, um, is a show at the, the Franklin um, in Chicago in uh, September of 2017, which is kind of like, there was a lot of shows like this last year. I mean, this is, I think, like the fourth solo show in this kind of run of the year. Uh, this one at demo. So I'm kind of actually just looking forward to going back to the studio and kind of building a whole new body of work sure. um, to basically hopefully show at the Franklin, which is a space run by uh, Adriel Soto and Dan Sullivan um, here in Chicago. And it's, it's kind of an apartment space, which I kind of grew up showing in um, and really like that format of Chicago. And it, it, you know, kind of comes in and out of fashion, but uh, they've kind of taken it a, a step further with the space. And we kind of just sealed the deal and kind of, you know, figured out a date for that. So not entirely sure what that one's going to be called. Um, I do think there's going to be some ghosts fucking in the show. So I think that'll be <laughs> exciting um, if I can figure out how to make those. But then again, they might wind up on the side of things that can't be figured out. Uh, we do have some time. So, but yeah, mostly just working in the studio and probably just picking up some small group shows here and there. And, you know, it's kind of, yeah, you get phone calls and then you're like, oh, yeah, okay, let's do that show. Awesome. Well, I guess before I officially let you go, then is there anything that I might you might have prepped for that, or something that you're like I didn't even talk about that? Um, no, no, no. I mean, sorry. I, I probably judging from the tape, you'll be like, God, he didn't prep at all. Yeah, if you need to edit things, maybe you should use like Tom Cruise like sound bites instead. <laughs> of <my laughs> Gosh, we didn't even talk about like inter- like. Um, there's that aspect of the remakes, you know, that are so popular. Um, well, I mean, and, and that's something that's kind of like Hollywood wise anyways, in terms of pop culture. I mean, that's something that they don't want to spend any money on to, you know, invest in something that's new. Yeah. It's like, I hire a scriptwriter. We've already got the rights to this script. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of getting sick of that stuff. I mean, there's a little bit of like, you know, it's just such, I mean, for me, it's like flagrant nostalgia, but I mean, I, I don't know. It's like it's back to this. I mean, I don't know what the. It's kind of up to the millennials to figure that out and say whether they like that or not. But I mean, I'd be kind of pissed off if I didn't have any of my own films. You know, you just have like a new shitty version of The Breakfast Club is kind of what's defining your generation. That's I mean, so, that sounds terrible. <laughs> well, well, there's gonna be a there's gonna be a Top Gun two. 
Um, and since you brought up Top Gun, I'm, I'm of course, just like, good gosh. I can't imagine. Cruise is still looking good. I don't know how they're going to get Val Kilmer in that fucking flight suit, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that's fitting. That's perfect. Well, again, thanks so much for uh, taking the time uh, to speak with me this morning. I was... Yeah, no, it was great talking with you, dude. Um, yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Thanks once again to Mike for joining us, and please go check out his work at Demo Project. Once again, his show, Ghosting, runs through June 6th, and you can catch that on Saturdays from 1 to 4 in Springfield, Illinois. Don't miss it. You can also go to his website at MikeRay.com, so please do that. I do want to remind you that our 2015 competition is coming to a close June 15th, so get your applications in. Once again, it's very easy, so go to studiobreak.com to find out how. You'll see it under the 2015 competition information. Once again, it's open to all BA, BFA, MA, MFA, and professional artists. Our juror this year is Julia Friedman of Exchange Works, and we'll be selecting three artists from each of those categories to be featured on Studio Break to share their work, as well as get an in-depth interview about it, so please apply there. We're also very excited to remind you that three artists that's one from each of those categories will be featured for one show at Demo Project, one at the Peoria Art Guild, and one will be featured at Jan Brandt Gallery. So if you're an artist, please apply, or if you know anybody that might be interested, a student or a peer, please tell them to apply. Just a reminder to our new listeners that Studio Break is a podcast and blog site. We feature all sorts of interviews. You can check them out on studiobreak.com. Go go to the left sidebar, go through the archives, go month by month. You can also subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and go through our archive there as well. Please leave us some comments, some feedback there, as it just generally helps visibility with this podcast. We really appreciate it. You can also share posts and all sorts of stuff on facebook so please like our facebook page once again you can follow our tumblr account at studio-break.tumblr and you can also send us tweets at studio break so please uh, check us out on those social media avenues once again we do want to thank skylar mail for providing the music for studio break you can check out his work his website is skylarmail.com if you're interested about my work check it out at davidlinaway.com and also for a limited time you can check it out at five pieces where i have a solo exhibition up so check that out all right that is our show for the week thanks so much for listening get your apps in and we'll talk to you real soon